Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 39. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the heart knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be with us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Do you feel like that more than conquerors through him who loved us? Do you feel like that? Do you feel that you're on the victory side? Or do you feel defeated and a tiny alien minority? Two weeks ago, Parliament did something which has never, ever happened before in the life of our nation. It declared that homosexual liaisons were morally equivalent to marriage. And I'm sure that if Charles Oxley had been alive tonight, he would have been as sad as we are because he knew his fair share, humanly speaking, of what seems like a defeat. But do you believe that you're on the victory side, that we are on the victory side, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us? The subject of my lecture tonight really is someone who may be entirely unknown to everybody here. That certainly would be a great advantage to me insofar as that we few who could contradict what I said. Um, but there may be somebody here who knew Charles Oxley well and knew him better. Um, I became aware of Charles Oxley, I guess, about ten years ago when somebody who I know well and value a great deal said to me, have you ever heard of Charles Oxley? And I said, no. And he said, well, I think that you and he had a lot in common. Now, as I talk tonight, you may decide whether he'd taken leave of his senses or not. I'm not sure. Um, it would be very flattering in one sense. Although, in many senses, I guess, Charles Oxley was regarded as a pain in the neck. And you may think, yes, you and he had a great deal in common. You may. I would like to tell you just a little bit about uh, him as a person, but more importantly, about some of the causes in which he became involved, because you will see... Uh, hopefully even from the title, that he was very much a man of action. He did things. He tried to get things done for the Lord. Charles Oxley was a friend and Christian colleague of Raymond Johnston. And those of you who were here last year may remember that he was the subject of one of our autumn lectures. Raymond Johnston playing a leading part in the creation of care uh, as an organization and Charles Oxley being very much associated with that. Charles Oxley died in 1987, so within the living memory of most of us here tonight. And he was a member of the Open Christian Brethren. It's very clear from those who knew him and reading about him that he had a deep love for the Lord Jesus Christ and a total commitment to the inerrancy of God's word in the Bible. He believed that every single word of the Bible was inspired by God and he was unequivocal about that. He was, as I've said, a lifelong 
foot soldier for the Lord in the public square. He was a visible person, not a secret disciple. And he was motivated by his Christian faith to promote moral standards and truth and to stand against those who sought to erode, to erode moral standards and to deny truth. And although, as I've said, he was a very loyal and respected and lifelong member of the Brethren movement, he had been concerned for many years about the fact that many Brethren, and indeed many evangelicals wider than the Brethren movement, seemed reluctant to face up to the issues of the world around them. And he thought that, very properly, that whilst they were rightly keen to maintain a strong line on biblical teaching, they were reluctant to apply biblical principles to issues of public policy. He thought it important both to preach the moral law of God as revealed in the Bible and also at the same time man's need of rescue through a saviour the unique Son of God, Jesus Christ. And in many ways, I'm confident that Charles would have been very happy to have been associated with the Christian Institute. Although he might have believed, and I don't know, we can never prove this, that it was not conservative enough and not firm enough, I don't know. Certainly think it's fair to say that uh, diplomacy was not his natural style. He was not a natural diplomat. Um, he might have thought we were too timid, too cautious. One thing is very clear, if you read about his life, he was never far from the storm of controversy, from the heat of the battle. He was ever prepared to stand up and be counted, nor did he shrink from the conflict which faced him. I suspect, like many of us, he didn't like conflict. But he thought it was inconceivable that a Christian could avoid conflict. And he did not run away from the battlefield. I guess he would be a good man to have at your right-hand side. He would be beside you, not behind you. His biographer, David Rayner, rightly calls him a standard-bearer for God. One of the loose sheaves which formed the outline of a book which he never wrote contained a double question from Psalm 94. If you look at Psalm 94 and verse 16, you'll see there two questions. God is asking these questions. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me? against the workers of iniquity. And I think that sums up very neatly and aptly much of Charles Oxley's life and work. He saw everything in terms of good and evil. And he was probably blessed, I think certainly blessed, not to have lived really long enough to know the term political correctness. What does it mean? I don't know that he would ask that question very deeply 
I think we can be sure that he would have despised the term and despised the concept because for him it would have meant the removal of important benchmarks without which society would have collapsed. And those benchmarks, of course, can only be found in one place, in the Bible, nowhere else. And for him, the Jesus Christ whom he served spoke of division between sheep and goats, between light and darkness, between foolishness and faithfulness, and the importance of the narrow way. He despised, I think, those who talked about the Christian faith as being narrow. Did not Jesus say it was the narrow way and that it was the broad way that leads to destruction? How out of tune that is with our times. Charles Oxley was born in the Partick area of Glasgow, in 1922 and he had Scottish ancestry on his mother's side but his family came from the country of the county rather of the Red Rose and don't tell me you don't know where that is and it's not Yorkshire the county of Lancashire and from the industrial town of St Helens where in fact Charles grew up and lived for almost all of his life in many ways he was a Lancastrian although born in Glasgow. His paternal grandfather, Charles Oxley, first found employment in the coal mines of Warrington. And he became a leading brother in the local Brethren Assembly. And his maternal grandfather also came from humble beginnings. And he started life as a grocer's boy and later owned his own grocery business in Drunmore in Wigtown. He too was a devout man of God with a deep understanding of truth and a powerful gift of expounding it. And those influences of his grandparents had a profound effect on Charles Oxley. And I think we see here the importance of straightforward men deeply influenced by the word of God. Not for them, the double talk and the incoherence of so-called intellectuals who sometimes try to marry the Bible's teaching to cleverness and sophistication and the spirit of the age and inevitably produce no fruit which lasts. I think we must never underestimate the significance of godly parents and godly grandparents in the Christian nurture of young people. Well, Charles' own parents, David and Maggie, set up in Dunriding Lane in St. Helens. They had a comfortable but not extravagant lifestyle, but sadly, traumatically, the marriage inexplicably broke down. And that was to have lasting effect on Charles Oxley and his view of divorce. His theology became formulated as a young adult, and uh, for him... He simply could not justify from the scriptures, for example, the remarriage of a divorcee. I think he would have been very sad to know that the Church of England in this day has sanctioned that. He was a man, 
and I say this in a neutral way at the moment, he was a man who was very much attached to the authorized King James Version of the Bible. He believed, as I've said, in the total authority of the scriptures, and to him the words of Jesus were clear, categorical, unambiguous, uncompromising. He would, for example, often quote Matthew 19, verse 9, which people choose to interpret differently, but whosoever shall put away his wife except for adultery and shall marry another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. A very strong line that. Charles Oxley was married, his wife Muriel, and they had three sons and one daughter. And just to give you a flavor of the man, when the Church of England was debating the remarriage of divorcees in the late 70s and early 80s, he wrote thus to the Church of England newspaper. He said this, Jesus taught that marriage vows were sacred and inviolable, and that a marriage to a second woman or man is an adulterous relationship. And when a Church of England bishop was praised in those days as being enlightened for speaking in favor of the ordination of divorcees, Charles asked, enlightened? By whose light? For it cannot be by the light of him who claimed to be the light of the world. For he affirmed the inviolability of marriage with the words, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in a letter to the Liverpool Daily Post in 1979, he wrote thus, It was the Archbishop's Commission on Marriage and Divorce which published a report called Putting Asunder in 1966 that formed the basis for the Divorce, Divorce Reform Act of 1969. The Archbishop's Commission recommended that divorce should be allowed where a marriage could be shown to have irretrievably broken down. These, he said, are new and unscriptural grounds for divorce. In these permissive days, the clear and uncompromising teaching of Jesus is thought to be harsh and unrealistic. But the breaking of marriage vows causes very harsh and very real suffering, especially to children. I guess that gives you something of the style and the manner of Charles Oxley. And that style and manner lasted him throughout his life. He never really moderated it. What were the causes for which he was to fight and about which I wish to speak? They include the following. Christian schooling, religious education, Stopping the spread of sex shops, standards in the media, pornography, blasphemy, pedophilia, the declining moral standards of the nation. Do they sound familiar themes? They're very familiar. And most of them are the causes for which the Christian Institute still stands and which it seeks to fight and stand its ground. And so I'd like to look at some of those issues and just tell you in some detail of Charles's position on them. I don't know whether Charles Oxley was an intellectual or not. 
I suspect he might have despised the term. I'm not sure. He was intelligent, but that's different, of course. He was a man of action, a man who was very clear about where he stood and where he believed Christians should stand. And you may not agree with all of the things that, uh, that he said, but we're not here to either agree or disagree at the moment, just to, to get a flavor of them. Charles took a close and practical interest in schools and schooling. His educational philosophy had three underlying aims. Each child, he said, should be encouraged to achieve self-discipline and good behavior. Each child should be encouraged to achieve the highest academic standards of which they were capable, and each child should be taught the Christian faith by means of Bible-based assemblies and scripture lessons. And we notice how down the years scripture has become religious education, has become religious studies and all sorts of other things too, but he very much retained that word scripture. He lived in the years following the Education Act of 1944. There will be some people who even remember that act being passed although it actually didn't name grammar schools and secondary modern schools and technical schools. But the consequence of it was the creation of an examination which some people here may have taken, the 11 plus, which I think still exists in one or two parts of Britain today. He felt that the 11 plus had been a mistake he felt, for example, that if children were properly taught, if they were properly taught, big if, in the basics of reading and writing and number in their primary schools, a sizable majority could and should receive the benefits of what then was called a grammar school type of education. Incidentally, he himself set up three schools in the United Kingdom. They were independent schools. They were fee-paying schools, modest fee-paying schools. Two of them were in Lancashire, and one was in Scotland. And what increasingly dismayed him in the 1970s and 80s, and some of you were alive at that time and well and, and would know this, was the growing number of candidates who sought places in his schools, who clearly had the ability to cope with an academically rigorous education, but who had not been really taught to read, write, spell, count, and know what grammar was. Some of you will know what grammar was. He had very little time, if any, for the so-called free expression methods of teaching, particularly of teaching English, which became very fashionable from the 1960s onwards. There were people called progressives, I never understand what they were, really. Presumably, progressives moved from somewhere to somewhere, with very little aim, it seems to me. But he had very little time for them, because he believed that they had decided to influence teachers to believe that as long as a child could express something of his personality and imagination, such things as grammar and spelling and punctuation were relatively unimportant. And some of you may come across inspectors of schools who 
said those things. Very often, they sent their own children to independent schools, which taught the very opposite. But that's another issue. Now, in case you think that is somehow kind of tangential to biblical faith, I think that Oxley would argue that man created in God's image, and God is a, crea- is a communicating God who speaks with clarity, man created in God's image is meant also to communicate with clarity, unambiguously. And so grammar and punctuation and clarity of speech were crucial for their full development as the crown of God's creation. So progressive teachers were not welcome at Oxley schools. And when they applied for jobs, uh, they were carefully scrutinized. The application form was looked at very closely. And he said, I'm sure on more than one occasion, if they can't read and spell properly, I will not have them. They couldn't spell, they couldn't read, they're not fit to be teachers. Now, you may say that's a pretty unexceptional thing to think. But there are teachers who cannot spell and who cannot write and who cannot count, who teach. Don't want to upset too many teachers here tonight. As I say, he opened three independent Christian schools, two in Lancashire, one at uh, St. Helens and one at a place called Scarsbrick near Ormskirk and one in Scotland in Hamilton, which is just south of Glasgow. He was a controversial man. He had a very low opinion of teacher unions because he believed that they had led teachers away from professionalism towards what he called the education industry. In his schools, children were to look smart, they were to be well-behaved, they were to work hard, they were to achieve academic success, and they were to know what is true and believe what is right as revealed by God in his word. For Oxley, the real frame of reference was God's word. And again, you may say this is becoming very controversial, and please don't throw things at me at a moment. I'm saying this is what he said. Whether I agree with it or not is neither here nor there. You can ask me later if you want to. He expected very high standards of his teachers. Not only should they read and write and be clear about these things, they must set high standards of dress as models for their pupils. Can't expect one thing of pupils if you have no standards yourself, he would say. And this is what he expected of all his staff. To accept an appointment as a staff member is to undertake an obligation to maintain appropriate standards of dress and deportment. Gentlemen, you may say very modestly, were to wear jackets, collars, and ties, and ladies may not wear trousers, and smoking and drinking are not allowed on the school premises. Now, for Charles, such beliefs were not chauvinistic or sexist, whatever those two words mean. He believed that the biblical view was that men should look manly and women should look feminine. He regarded men and women as equal but different And he thought that women who wear trousers as teachers and as models in front of children were deliberately or ignorantly blurring the divinely created distinctions. And one thing he abhorred is the applicant who put after their name Anne Smith, MS. 
Ms. I suspect, although I don't know, but I know people who do this now, the application form went straight into the bin without scrutiny. However, as you see, he's a man of quite firm beliefs and standards, and he took a very strong line. Two of the Oxley schools still survive. Some time ago, Scarisbrig in Ormskirk and Towers College at St. Helens combined effectively, and the college now exists. It's a 3 to 16 Christian school called Towers College, which I visited not so long ago. And Hamilton College uh, is still going very strong. It's a 3 to 18 school with 800 pupils just south of Glasgow. And so he's left a I would say, a very fine legacy of two successful Christian schools. And it's been my privilege to be a governor of Hamilton College for the last four years to play a modest part in helping to ensure that that exemplar of Christian education continues. You cannot guarantee that simply by setting up a Christian school in one generation, it will automatically remain so. If you doubt that, just look what's happened to Dr. Bernardo's. He had a great entrepreneurial ability, a clear business skill. And he was able to create opportunities from what other people would believe to be hopeless situations. He ran his schools as businesses, and although he tried to keep the fees as low as possible, he said his schools would be non-profit making, and any excess of fees over expenditure was to be used for the benefit of the school. He had a particular interest in religious education. Early in 1976, Raymond Johnston of the National Festival of Light, Lady Lothian of the Order of Christian Unity, Mary Whitehouse of the National Viewers and Listeners Association, and Charles Oxley formed themselves into a committee to mount a campaign, Save Religious Education. Even then, religious education was under threat. A major weapon in their armory at the time was a petition that gained 600,000 signatories. And it kept to two straightforward demands. One, people who signed it, I support a daily act of Christian worship and religious education schools. And two, I am against political philosophies such as communism and fascism being taught to children as alternatives to Christianity in religious education lessons, as had been recommended at the time by the government-backed National Foundation for Educational Research. In the mid-70s, they, ad they advocated that political philosophies such as communism should be taught to children as alternatives to Christianity. Charles had carefully traced the need for such a campaign to the activities of the British Humanists Association, which had been formed in 1962. And one of the major aims of the British Humanist Association, who always described themselves as being neutral, was to have religious education and the corporate act of worship removed from all state schools. Repeated failure by the British Humanist Association, led it to change tactics. And it began to promote the view that Britain, as a result of immigration, 
had become a multi-faith society in which Christianity was one of several accepted religions. And so they would say, religious education should reflect the pluralism of Britain and include other faiths such as Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and of course, humanism. Their allies were the National Secular Society. They argued for the abolition of religion and worship in schools and the introduction of more neutrality, objective, evolutionary, scientific instruction in schools. They believed that Christianity indoctrinates and so they campaigned for lots of things beyond that. They campaigned for easier divorce, the abolition of the law on blasphemy, and the free use of Sundays for recreational purpose. And they also published all sorts of odd things, a tract on swearing, commending swearing as a great release from bottle of indignation. And in March 1969, they pr printed and distributed direct to fifth and sixth formers in schools pamphlets inciting them to rebel against compulsory religious education in schools. You can trace all these things way back. Charles Oxley had carefully monitored all this and he was not surprised that in 1975, Geoffrey Edge, the Labour MP for Aldrich and Brownhills, declares his intent to introduce a private member's bill to remove the legal requirement of religious education in schools. Charles Oxley described the new ideas about uh, religious education as a cook's tour of world religions that included humanism, communism and the occult. And he saw it for what it surely was, a wider campaign to undermine the Christian basis of our culture and of our heritage. For Oxley, the distinctiveness of our culture was its foundation in biblical truth. That's what made it great and powerful. It was rooted firmly in the Bible and in biblical truth. And he believed that so-called intellectuals and opinion formers were consciously, deliberately undermining biblical Christianity in an attempt to replace it with a secular, atheistic culture. At the same time, there was a body, I think fairly self-appointed, these things often are, called the Religious Education Council. And it set up what it, people always want to do if they want to undermine society, working parties. And it set up a working party to consider the future of the agreed religious education in schools. That is the syllabus which would govern what was taught uh, in schools. Two factors had a crucial influence on the report produced by that working party. One was the inclusion in the 11 strong membership of it of a Dr. Harry Stopes Rowe, chairman of the British Humanist Society and Association. And when Charles was interviewed, amazingly, on Radio 4's Sunday programme, it's amazing how programmes like that can survive. It's been going a long time. When he was interviewed on that Radio 4 Sunday program about the working party's report, he said, I don't know why the head of an anti-religious organization should be on the Religious Education Council at all. 
Was that a naive question? It's a good question. The second influence was the publication of a pamphlet by the British Humanist Association entitled Objective, Fair and Balanced, which persuaded liberal-minded Christians, and isn't that not a contradiction? Liberal-minded Christians. Can you be liberal and Christian? You tell me. Persuaded liberal-minded Christians to accept that changes should be made in the 1944 Act and that Christianity should no longer have what was called the privileged position in the religious education curriculum. And so that Save Religious Education campaign mobilized its forces to counter the threat of humanism and its allies. And is this not a surprise too? That campaign did not receive wholehearted support from the Christian Church through its leadership. The Bishop of Liverpool felt he could not wholly endorse it. The Secretary of the Association of Christian Teachers said the wording was something which needed to be looked at again and could not wholly endorse it. The campaign surprisingly did receive support from Dr. Coggan, the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time. But the British Humanist Association agenda was very clear to rid British schools of Christianity. And that battle continues today. Eternal vigilance is necessary. And as you know, the Christian Institute has played its part for many years in trying to stem that particular tide. Charles Oxley conducted many campaigns against the media. He regarded the media as one of the most dangerous influences in British society, undermining again our culture and way of life. I guess many of us, for example, think about complaining about a television program which we've seen which offends or blasphemes. Sadly, few translate their thoughts into action. And the BBC and others would say very, very few people complain ever about what is portrayed. I, I suspect few of us here have written as frequently or as persistently as Charles Oxley. He always objected to the polite brush-off that he got from the broadcasting companies. There were happy days, those. The brush-offs were polite. Now they're just brush-offs. Almost invariably, instances of blasphemy, of swearing, of vulgarity, had him reaching for his typewriter to remind the broadcasting authorities of their duty not to offend good taste or decency. And almost always the broadcaster's reply claimed that they were simply reflecting the language and attitudes prevalent in society, to which he would always reply that the media themselves were playing a major part in establishing vulgarity and indecency as norms. He never settled for a bland reply from a secretary or producer of a program. He sought to confront, convince, and his letter often went right to the top to the director general of the BBC or the controller of a particular channel or the chairman of the independent broadcasting authority. He was nothing if not tenacious. An exchange of letters, you may say this is a, 
uh, almost an obsessive attention to detail. An exchange of letters which lasted four and a half months wrote, arose out of four words spoken by a Radio 4 announcer one morning in April 1978. This is what the announcer read. And Charles Oxley was deeply offended. Would we be? Or was he just being over the top, as we would say now? This is what the announcer said. According to the legend, Hiram, king of Tyre, helped Solomon in the building of the temple. According to the legend. An immediate telephone call from Oxley to Broadcasting House asked for the broadcast to be corrected. It was unsuccessful. So he followed it with a letter of complaint about the use of the word legend in reference to part of the scriptures sacred to both Christians and Jews. The senior assistant of the BBC secretary to whom Charles' letter had come had no inkling of how doggedly determined the particular listener would turn out to be. Charles went to the trouble of quoting nine eminent biblical scholars to support his point that Hiram's cooperation with Solomon was a historical fact, not a legend. And as a Bible scholar himself, and as a teacher, this was more than just an intellectual argument. Here is one of the extracts from his letter in the midst of that controversy. He wrote this, You may think I'm making a fuss over a minor academic inaccuracy. I'm not. I'm trying to express a deep sense of outrage that those now in charge of the nation's broadcasting service, which I held in such high personal regard before and during the war, are so insensitive as to persist in describing as legend a biblical passage which is well authenticated by archaeology and contemporary historical records, and in so doing, show contempt for what I and many others hold most dear, our faith in the Holy Scriptures as the Word of God. And finally, an apology or a correction of kinds was given. That's just one example to give you a flavour of some of his battles with radio and television, he felt very strongly that Christians had a duty, not an option, a duty, to stand for high moral values and wholesome programs, not least in the interest of the young and the vulnerable. To do nothing or to be indifferent was for him to allow the enemy an even larger foothold and could not be excused. For him, it was a sin for good men to do nothing. Let me turn now to an issue which brought him huge controversy. Pedophilia. He felt very strongly indeed about that issue. And it remains an issue of strong concern today. And there remain in our society perverted people who seriously and currently argue that the matter is not a moral one at all and that the practice of paedophilia can and does have therapeutic value both to the child and the perpetrating adult. Such are the depths of immorality into which some people have plunged, and such are the depths of immorality that a view like that can get serious hearing. His concern was so great 
that he took a huge and, some would argue, an unacceptable risk. In the 1980s, there existed a group called the Pedophile Information Exchange, PI for short. And that was, in fact, a group that was set up to promote sex by adults with children. And Charles Oxley, undercover, infiltrated the group in order to expose them. And when the story finally broke, he made the kind of headlines in the national press, which is fairly rare for Christians. The spy in the pie. Undercover crusader. The kiddie sex spy tells all. I know things have moved on. It almost sounds quaint now. But those were the headlines of the time. Pi, the paedophile information exchange, had been funded, founded in 1974 because it was felt there was a need in Britain for those people who were attracted sexual, or who were attracted sexual otherwise to children under the age of 14 should have a forum and a support network. And its aims were these, to clear away where possible the myths connected with paedophilia by various means, including making public, scientific, sociological and other information. To give advice and counsel to those isolated or lonely because of their paedophile orientation. To help those in legal difficulties concerning sexual acts with underage partners that take place with the latter's consent. To campaign as members see fit for the legal and social acceptance of paedophile love, to provide a means whereby paedophiles might get in contact one with another. And Charles Oxley wrote uh, an article in the newspaper denouncing paedophiles in a very direct way. He sought to cut through their high-sounding practice and in very direct language denounce them as depraved and sordid. And his attack drew reply from a Tom O'Carroll who recently went to jail for paedophile activities of one sort or another. He was a publicity officer with the Open University. He was later jailed for paedophile activities. And he, O'Carroll's letter to Oxley was a long one, pretty unpleasant one, signed, yours faithfully, P.P. Satan. Perhaps he knew more than he did know. Oxley began to keep a close eye on media reports of paedophilic activity and wondered whether he should seek to gain access to them. Just how far should he go in delving into that dark world became for him a matter of serious thought and prayer with his wife Muriel, and he decided to act. And he took an assumed name. He called himself Dave Charlton. His father was David Charlton Oxley. And he wrote under that name to Tom O'Carroll, the box number, expressing an interest in the paedophile information exchange and asking for relevant information. His Christian faith told him that he should keep a clear conscience before God. So it was a very serious thing for him to deceive anybody with an with a assumed false name. And as it turned out, it was the only deception he used in his dealings with that organization. And he said later, it was a deception, I admit, but I regarded it as the lesser of two evils. That's a matter for you to think about, but that's what he did.
And he was invited to an executive meeting of that organization. He knew all the risks involved, and he took the precaution of informing the police of his intentions and passed on to the police some of the vile magazines he had received. The more he became involved with Pi, the greater his risk of discovery, either by the members themselves or by eager journalists on the trail of paedophiles. That organization was very small. It had 249 members in the UK at the time. Charles hoped to gain access to their names. The Pi executive became suspicious. They believed he was the source of materials appearing in newspapers about them. But he persisted for a while and gave a great deal of information to the police. And after more than a year's delay, the director of public prosecutions decided to act against Pi. Two members of Pi were committed to the Old Bailey, and Charles Oxley was the chief prosecution witness. Third member fled the country. To Charles's disgust, the two men were cleared of incitement to commit buggery and unlawful sex and indecent assault, but they were each sentenced to six months in prison for sending obscene materials to the post, and one of them was given 18 months for publishing an obscene article. And this is what he wrote about his experiences of Pi. He said this, Over a period of six years, I discovered, through careful reading of all publications, including magazines for members only, through personal correspondence with seven members of the executive, through conversations with leading members, and through attendance at meetings of the executive committee, that the organization is led by men who preach sexual activity with young children and who practice what they preach. And some have boasted of their actions in my hearings. And despite his efforts in exposing Pi and seeing two of its members prosecuted with a measure of success, he was far from satisfied with the law relating to the sexual abuse of young children. He thought it essential to take the battle of Parliament and to enlist, enlist the help of sympathetic members of Parliament. And he wrote to the Home Secretary to present a cogent argument to change the law. He said this, I am aware that there is a great reluctance to prescribe an organization which claims merely to be educating the public and reform the law because of the great value in this country of freedom of speech. But there are some differences between normal pressure groups and Pi. The main and crucial difference is that Pi wants to decriminalize a most appalling crime perpetrated against the most vulnerable members of our society namely small children, exposing them to long-term physical and psychological and emotional harm. May I urge you most earnestly to initiate or give government support to legislation to prescribe organizations whose aims include the legal and social acceptance of adult sexual relations with children under the age of 16. That letter went in 1984, and it was not until five years later a year and a half after his death in 1987, that in 1989 the Children Act became law. And it dealt with many things, including a range of issues affecting children's well-being and providing stern punishment for those advocating or indulging in the sexual abuse of children. One of the reactions of his efforts, which is not unknown today, was that his house was daubed 
with white painted obscenities. Again, a familiar response today. And then there were the issues of sex shops and blasphemy. In 1977, the Home Secretary appointed a committee of the wise and the good, chaired by Professor Bernard Williams, to look at the Obscene Publications Act of 1959 with a view to removing what they called confusion and ineffectiveness. And the specific area would be to consider obscenity and film censorship. But when Charles Oxley saw the names of those chosen to serve on the committee, he was convinced that they would seek to promote a permissive and humanistic view of the subject. Charles was a close friend of Mary Whitehouse. And there is another example of an issue where they worked together. She had submitted recommendations to the committee on behalf of the National Viewers and Listeners Association. Charles Oxley and Mary Whitehouse were dismayed at the recommendations of this committee. Charles said that in a word the recommendations were utterly permissive and the report recommended that pornographic materials of all categories should be made available to all persons of 18 or over provided it was sold in shops which did not display pornography in the window and from which all children under 18 were banned. There had been a change of Home Secretary William Whitelaw who shelled the report but, following the report, sex shops opened in Soho with windows that said, as recommended by the Williams Report, new sex shop. And sex shops came to be established in towns and cities across the country. Local people protested, but there was no real legal basis for demanding closure, and there was much confusion. And once again, we see Charles Oxley's doggedness, tenacity, perseverance, commitment. In 1981, in his local paper in St. Helens, he spotted an advertisement for a manager of an adult bookshop, soon to be open in the town. He gave himself a pseudonym and sent off an application for the job. He discovered it was a sex shop near the centre of the town on a street corner, and he booked St. Helens Town Hall for a protest meeting 600 turned up on a wintry February night. A local action group was set up. Local Christians began to be mobilised. Charles Oxley wrote to the managing director of Conegate Limited, who specialised in magazines, and told him that the people of St. Helens would not stand by and allow a sex shop to be set up. And the firm backed off. And one of the directors wrote to the national newspaper saying, we don't go where we're not wanted. I can only say that there must be an extremely Christian lot in St. Helens. That view was confirmed by an attendance of 400 people at a Thanksgiving service for the successful outcome of the protest. And he received, as a result of that, requests for a number of towns wanting help in their fight against sex shops, among them at Wigan, Preston, Southport, Sefton, and Hartlepool. And he spoke at many, many meetings, giving information about how to gain access to the companies who were applying for a license to operate the shops. Christian MPs were trying to introduce legislation 
which would make it impossible or very difficult to obtain a license. Eventually, a clause was passed to the local government bill. Most councils were willing to use this legislation to refuse licenses. But working with Mary Whitehouse, Charles sent out leaflets to give advice to people involved in these legal battles. Each leaflet was very precise about the need, how to approach the local authority, the kind of letter to be written to an appropriate officer. It suggested visiting the actual shop and reporting any indecent material to the police. It urged protesters to attend any meeting and explained that a hearing was not a law court and there was no need to feel nervous or embarrassed. He ended it, don't allow yourself to be intimidated or bamboozled. And where the local protest groups were vigilant and determined, success usually followed. For example, at Southport, as many as 1,500 people attended a protest meeting, 18,000 people signed a petition. The campaign lasted three years and eight months from the time when the sex shop opened until it finally closed its doors. Were his efforts and time worth it? As a biblical Christian, Charles Oxley found the legalization of pornography abhorrent. He said that it debased true love. He believed that although it claimed to release people from inhibitions, it actually enslaved them to their sexual desires. He believed that it exploited women by portraying them as objects of use by men rather than as true people in their own light right. The young and the disturbed, he claimed, were encouraged to imitate what they saw portrayed and promiscuity was promoted. It was not sufficient, he said, to restrict pornography to the sex shop and thus protect children, as some claimed. It would be impossible to enforce and it would be harmful in encouraging rape and attempted rape. His biblical beliefs also led him to speak out against blasphemy. He regarded blasphemy as an explicit insult directed to the living God or an implicit statement of atheism. And equally, he regarded the need to recognize the supreme authority accorded to the name of Jesus Christ in the New Testament as being paramount. He was saddened by the easy acceptance of blasphemy in normal conversation and by the use of the name of Jesus Christ on television. Are we? He believed that radio and television encouraged blasphemy and clearly things have deteriorated further in the last 15 years. He was stirred by the memory of his sister as a 17-year-old office junior in a Glasgow bank, hearing her bank manager, her boss, taking the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in vain. And she had said to him, excuse me, sir, but Jesus Christ is my saviour and friend. Would you please not use his name in that way? And the manager apparently apologised and at least curbed his tongue within her hearing from then on. Remember in 1997, Dennis Lemon published that infamous poem by James Kirkup, The Love That Dares Not Speak Its Name, Dares to Speak Its Name, in Gay News, a magazine for homosexuals. That blasphemous poem, attacking the Lord Jesus Christ. Lemon and his associates were banking on the fact 
that laws against blasphemy had been taken off the statute book in 1967 and 1969, but they had overlooked the common law of blasphemous libel. It was that fact that led Mary Whitehouse to bring a private prosecution against Lemon and the magazine. Charles Oxley was a friend, colleague, and fellow battler with Mary Whitehouse. Alongside a nude figure of Christ on the cross, the poem suggested homosexual activity by Jesus with his disciples and others. And the author took up the centurion's confession of faith in Jesus, the Son of God, and shamelessly tried to twist it into a justification for sodomy. In seeking support for Mary Whitehouse's stand, Charles Oxley made a 200 miles round trip to visit and seek the support of an eminent clergyman. On arrival, though he had made an appointment, he was told, His Grace is unable to see you. His Grace being the clergyman. Charles left the relevant papers with the secretary asking for an early response. No response came. A telephone inquiry ten days later elicited the information that His Grace had put the papers on the fire. But after the case had been successfully concluded with this editor and magazine heavily fined, the same His Grace sent what Oxley described as a smarmy letter of congratulations. The insincerity of the letter appalled Charles Oxley and his reaction was, at least the printable bit, ugh, ashes upon his mitre. But his grace was not alone. Churchmen of various denominations poured scorn on Mary Whitehouse's prosecution and the very idea of bringing such a case to court. Once again, churchmen tried to be men-pleasers rather than God-pleasers. Barbara Smoker, who was president of the National Secular Society, had written to the Church Times complaining about Mary Whitehouse for bringing the prosecution in the first place, claiming in her words that we are an adult society now, we do not require a school mom called Mary Whitehouse. And Charles replied in these terms, I would describe a society as adult when it is discerning what is right and wrong, when it is self-disciplined, when it is considerate for the feeling of others and responsible in its caring for the young and the immature. The law against blasphemy was not invented by Mary Whitehouse. It's God's law, and Miss Stoker's quarrel is with him. Almost immediately after Gay News was found guilty of the Old Bailey of blasphemous libel, a committee was set up for the abolition of the law against blasphemy. And a strong supporter of the National Secular Society, Lord Ted Willis, tried hard to have blasphemy removed from common law. And in 1978, its bill, his bill failed to get a second reading. And the Earl of Halsbury led the opposition to the bill. I just quote his words. I think that society has suffered enough damage in recent years at the hands of so-called liberal humanists. They plunder the capital accumulated by 2,000 years of Christian effort and thereby they provide the backcloth of, of ostensible respectability. Against this they preach that Christian values are unnecessary, that we can get on without them, though of course they are living, albeit with much, without much insight, on Christian values at second hand. 
they embark on the destruction of those values for no better reason than to give themselves something to write about. And in his closing words, the Earl of Halsbury summed up the feeling of probably a very large majority and definitely those of the vocal campaigner Charles Oxley when he said, I have had enough of not the permissive but the licentious society in which I have lived for the past 30 years and I want to strike a blow in the defense of something better. Why was it then and why is it now that Christians have to rely on elderly peers and without the active support of prominent churchmen, so-called defenders of the Christian faith, as the fabric of our Christian society is being stripped away. Why was it that our late patron, Lady Young, who was such a robust and tireless contender for Christian belief, for Christian marriage, for the Christian family, for biblical morality and Christian values, found so little support and so much opposition from so-called Christian leaders? Why is it that liberalism has gained such a foothold in the church? Liberalism is so essentially incoherent, irrational, subjective and man-pleasing. Why, we must ask, have we gathered around ourselves teachers to say what our itching ears want to hear? Why do so many not endure sound doctrine and so many ears turn away from the truth towards fables? Those warnings are set out in Scripture and we need look no further than 2 Timothy 4. See, Charles Oxley set in mind, set to his mind, to battle against all those who lost confidence in the gospel and in the absolute public truth of God's word in the whole of scripture. He was determined in his life to strive with heart, soul and strength to fight for God's standards in the public arena. And in his fight with liberals and modernists and secularists, he was indeed a standard bearer for Jesus Christ, the master whom he strove to serve with all he had been given. I believe he is an example to us in our days so to fight to ensure that the torch of those who do bear the standard is passed from one generation to another. In May 1981, the Law Commission published a working party report on blasphemy and Charles Oxley took the opportunity to express his view to the commission. He wanted blasphemy, not only to the law, not only be retained, but strengthened. Strengthened so that it covered not only blasphemous libel, but also any misuse of the name of Jesus Christ in print or broadcasting. Mary Whitehouse's prosecution, with the help of Charles Oxley, of Dennis Lemon Gay News, served not only to deal with one gross instance of blasphemous libel, but also to make people think whether they were prepared to see yet another stone removed from the crumbling edifice of Christian morality. It's not that Jesus or God needed the law to defend them, he said. But in the words of Lord Scarman, dismissing the Gay News appeal to the House of Lords in 1979, said this, the offence belongs to a group of criminal offences designed to safeguard the internal tranquility of the nation. I will not lend my voice to a view of the law of blasphemous libel, which would render it a dead letter or diminish its efficacy to protect religion from, outsult, from outrage and insult. His biographer, 
David Rayner would claim that in the later years of his life, Charles Oxley believed that the battle for Britain was being lost. But he did not give up the fight. He began to realize how the waves of atheistic, secular humanism were gradually eroding the cliffs of Christian morality. And what particularly grieved him was the lack of resistance and bottle among Christian leaders, some of whom stood unashamedly in the non-Christian ranks. He regarded the permissive society as the God-defying society. He had no doubt that moral collapse was due to the abandonment of the belief in the inerrancy of the scriptures. And he believed that the biblical doctrine of man had been replaced by man-centered theories and philosophies based on Darwin, Freud, and Marx. He deplored the way in which some churchmen watered down the gospel in such a way that all reference to judgment and hell was removed. And the whole emphasis was on a human view of a God of love who would tolerate everything. Gone, he said, for the danger of spending a lost eternity in hell. He wrote, tolerance is today's cardinal virtue and many professing Christians have become more compassionate in their own terms than Christ himself. He was no friend of the British Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches, both of whom he regarded as traitors to the cause of the kingdom of God. Both of these groupings, he said, sought to equate the Christian gospel with socialism or Marxism. You may recall that Pauline Webb, who was a spokesman for both of those bodies in the 1970s, said this, the Christian faith, she said, is an agent of world revolution and the purpose of the ecumenical movement is not to unite Christians, but to unite all mankind under a world socialist state. He was dismayed by the South Bank theologians characterized by Bishop John Robinson of Woolwich. It was Robinson who, you might remember, described the permissive society as a step towards maturity and who voluntarily entered the witness box to defend the publication of Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover when it was challenged under the Obscene Publication Act. And Robinson, Bishop of Woolwich, described the immoral sexual relationships described in the book as being, in a real sense, something sacred, an act of holy communion. Charles Oxley's comment was that Robinson could not possibly have written that had he not relinquished his hold on biblical truth. In the era of sexual effort, the church leaders at the time when Oxley was fighting these battles were ambivalent and confused. The Archbishop of Canterbury at the time described homosexuality as a handicap. And the Archbishop of York described it as a misfortune. He also regretted the failure of the church's stamp out heresy and immorality with his own ranks. It seemed clear to him that the majority of professing Christians were naively unaware of what was taking place. He wrote in pretty extreme language, who could have imagined 40 years ago that there would be a clergy-led buggery acceptance campaign euphemistically called the Christian gay Christian movement. And instead of a mighty roar of protest at the attack on our Christian faith and morals, there were a few tut-tuts and some ineffective wringing of hands. And as we look around the public state of, of the church and our nation today, those issues remain. And in many senses, 
we Christians are obliged to sing the Lord's song in a strange land and in an alien culture as we witness the rapid disintegration of the moral fabric of the nation. I must conclude. What was his legacy? There, were, there are two flourishing Christian independent schools now in existence in Lancashire and in Scotland. They're both beacons of Christian excellence. They challenge the humanism of the world around them. There's also the legacy to apply biblical principles to the issues of the contemporary world. In many ways, humanly speaking, Charles Oxley was not successful in stemming the rot and the decline. But that is beside the point. He took seriously the call of all disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ to be salty salt and bright lights in a collapsing culture. He was faithful to the end, and although realistic, he never gave in to despair. He saw very clearly that to abandon the whole of Scripture uh, as God's truth was to open the floodgates to relativism, gross immorality, and decline. I'm certain that to many, both inside and outside the church, he was regarded as a great nuisance, an irritant, and a bigot. He was certainly doggedly persistent in the cause of a master to whom he committed his life. And I have to say that in my view, his life and witness is an example to all of us who work for, who support the Christian Institute as we confront very similar issues today. The public persona in no way typified the whole man in his domestic life, his private life, he was a gentle giant. He was tall, charming, amiable, personable, quietly spoken scholar, a fun-loving father and grandfather. His life was rooted and anchored in prayer and a daily discipline of following God's word from the Bible and allowing that word to speak to him every day. He was a man of discipline and activism and his discipline was that of trying to ensure that each day God's word was his rule, God's Holy Spirit his teacher, and God's greater glory his supreme concern. He made time for God and things of God. And his activism was rooted in his sense of being in the hands of the living God, to whom one day he would have to give account. His favorite hymn remains a school hymn, of the two schools that exist today as a memorial to him. We're going to sing it a little bit later. But it's a, those are familiar words, aren't they? May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph through his power. May the peace of God my Father rule my life in everything that I may bring calm to comfort sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting self-abasing, this is victory. May I run the race before me, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as I onward go. I believe that Charles Oxley is an inspiration to us all and a challenge for us to be persistent, never to give up, to go on fighting as Christian soldiers, fighting for God's truth and challenging the godlessness of the world in which we live. For God has called us to a life with him in order that we might give glory to him. For we were made for him forever. 
Charles Oxley had a straightforward and uncomplicated faith. He had a very clear desire to enshrine and implant God's truth in the laws of our land. And he believed that this would be good for all believers and non-believers alike. He believed that the Bible could be trusted absolutely and that it was our only absolute authority in all that we do and believe. He believed that both law and gospel should be preached together. Of course he knew that the law does not save us, but he knew too that he is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And he saw his work as a contribution to the promotion of the gospel. Is not that the way the Christian Institute seeks to view its work? A real contribution to the promotion of the Christian gospel. He was realistic. He knew, humanly speaking, that he was not wholly successful in the battles he fought. He knew that. He was persistent. He never gave up. And there's a lesson for all of us in this. But he also knew this, and we surely know this, that he had an assurance of ultimate victory. He knew personally he, Jesus Christ, in whom he had trusted for all that he did. He knew the requirement to be faithful to the one whom one day he would have to account to. He knew that Christ had won the victory over sin, death, and the devil at Calvary. And he knew that one day that victory would be ours fully. He knew that Christians were destined for glory and to reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Temporary defeats, he would say, in this life must be viewed from the eternal perspective. And that's an important lesson for all of us. May we be worthy of our calling. And so I'm sure he would be saying to us tonight, onwards then, my Christian friends, continue in the battle, onwards to victory. I'm sure that uh, I haven't done full justice to his life. There's much more to say. I hope I've given you flavor of what he strove for. I hope it's an encouragement to us too. And uh, after a few minutes of uh, pause, we will have a, a time of questions. Dare I correct an ex-headmaster's use of language? I'd be a bit reluctant to hand over the, the, the useful term liberal to, to, to our enemies, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I would... what they call themselves. I would call them you know, so-called liberals. I mean, when you scratch the surface of these people, they are anything but liberal. Uh, and certainly I scratched uh, Richard Holloway's uh, surface a couple of weeks ago in Newcastle. It's surplus. Sorry? <laughs> I, I, I scratched the surface oh, of... the surface, sorry. Rick Richard Holloway. Yes, yes. Uh, and, uh, Former Bishop of Edinburgh. Yes, I mean, he, he, he's a self-professed uh, uh, archbishop of, of liberalism, but in, in fact, uh, when, when you uh, question his uh, current orthodoxy, uh, he is the most vile, nasty, uh, unliberal person you can, you can imagine. Well, I quite agree. I mean, uh, I, I call them liberals simply because that's what they call themselves. In my experience, Many of them are highly illiberal and highly intolerant. Uh, I think much of what they write is pseudo uh, and shoddy 
and irrational and subjective and meaningless. Uh, and it saddens me, and I had hoped not to touch upon him. Uh, I have a little booklet here which I commend to many of you. We haven't got it on sale, books all any pound. The Theology of Rowan Williams. You've heard of Rowan Williams, perhaps. Um, here is an extreme liberal in his own terms uh, who says, if you read his works, that God is a bit like a spastic. Those are the terms he used. He cannot communicate. Well, he says, part of his theology, that you can discover nothing in the Bible which is propositional truth, uh, that God is silent. And, you know, when you talk to people about uh, Rod Williams, one has to ask why it was that broad swathes of evangelicalism welcomed his appointment. Uh, when you scratch it, he's an extreme liberal, which means he's an extreme unbeliever. I have to say that. He denies, really and truly, if you read it, the substitute death of Jesus on the cross. He has a particular view of the cross, which is not biblically Christian. Um, and in a sense, his views on homosexuality are the presenting issue of a fundamental disbelief and disregard for the ability of God to communicate to us. But people will say to you, he's very clever. Very clever. I'm sure I've said this before, but a guy came to see me in the Christian Institute a few weeks ago uh, who said, I'm very firm, evangelical, I don't know what that means anymore. And he said, you must be delighted with the appointment of Rowan Williams. I said, I'm horrified, not delighted. Well, he said, very clever. He said, uh, have you read much of what he says? Mind you, he said, you probably wouldn't understand what he was writing. And I took that as a high compliment. <laughs> high compliment. I take the simple view that if someone can't actually communicate clearly, he's not much to say. Strikes me. But I only use the term because they use it on themselves. They don't think they're liberal at all. They're illiberal. I don't think they're rational at all. They're irrational. I don't think they have anything to say, and what they have to say has no power to save. So I take your correction, but I only use it because that's what they describe themselves as. I don't think they're liberal at all.